0: We love the feeling of security. We love it. This is why we purchase insurance policies to protect us from going bankrupt due to medical expenses or even flood damage to our houses. We put passwords on our phones and on our laptops to protect important information from getting into the wrong hands. We have home security systems to protect us from unwanted visitors. We lock our cars. We have safes to lock up our possessions to protect what is valuable to us. In 2024 alone, it's estimated that there will be $90 billion spent on security services alone. It's a lot of money. We like security because it allows us to rest at night, it allows us to sleep, it gives us a sense of control from the chaos that can often happen within our very lives. We love the assurance that not even a catastrophe can undo us. And it will preserve everything, that security that we have. In our text today, we see that security really does matter. God cares about our security. But the most important thing about our security is where it's found. It's not just a matter of of where it's found, but instead, because not just any security is going to do... Right, So it matters where you're going to find your security at the end of the day. Only one is going to be able to protect you and is going to be able to provide the inheritance that you need. So if you would turn with me to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. We're continuing our series in the book of Ruth. This story follows a woman named Naomi who has left Bethlehem along with her family to settle in Moab, Because of a famine. And yet, while they're in Moab, her husband and her sons die, leaving Naomi and her daughters in law, Orpah and Ruth, without husbands, without children, leaving them widowed. And yet, one of her daughters in law, named Ruth, makes an incredible decision to leave everything that she has ever known in Moab and to make a decision to go back with Naomi to Bethlehem, to go to a place that she does not know, to a people that are unfamiliar to her. All because she is committed to Naomi and to Naomi's God. And the lesson that we learned from chapter 1 was that our only hope in tragedy is to turn to the Lord. When everything is taken away from us, our only hope is to turn to the Lord. But as Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem, hungry and childless, they don't know what they're going to find there. They don't know what they're going to find in Bethlehem. Will people receive Ruth? Right, She's a Moabite. She's from outside the community. How are they going to receive her within that community? Would Ruth, a foreigner, be able to gather grain in Israelite fields? She doesn't know what she's going to get if she goes out to those fields to gather grain. Are they going to tell her off and tell her to be gone? If so, she needs someone's favor to do so. And so in an effort to provide food for both her and Naomi... She sets out to gather grain in the fields around Bethlehem. And yet instead of finding stinginess, she finds favor and extraordinary kindness from one field owner in particular, and that's Boaz. And what we find in Boaz is a man of character. He's generous. He's gracious. And after providing Ruth an overabundance of grain, Ruth returns to Naomi But as she returns, we find out something else about Boaz. He's a family redeemer. He's a relative to Elimelech, Naomi's late husband. Boaz is one who can actually restore what Naomi and Ruth have both lost in Moab. He can provide a home for Ruth. He can provide an heir to Naomi in the line of Elimelech so that their inheritance in the promised land is not taken away. But the question now is, Will he actually do that? Is he going to do that? He's already shown himself to be generous by providing an overabundance amount of food to them. But that's a short-term fix. Will he provide the long-term security that they need? To find out, let's read Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. Follow along as I read this chapter. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his fellow servants? This evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, Notice the place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. And she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight Boaz was startled. Turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, "Who are you?" "I am Ruth, your servant," she replied. "Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer." Then he said, "May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before, because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor." Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I. Stay here tonight, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now, lie down until morning. So she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl and she went into the town. She went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest unless he resolves this today. One of the interesting things about this chapter is that it really mirrors chapter two, right? We have someone who is going out, and then coming back in. There's three scenes within this chapter, and yet they're going out trying to find provision and protection. Both begin with someone taking initiative to find what they need. But the message of this chapter, it differs from the last. And I think it differs in this way, which I think is the main idea. It's that the rest we seek the rest we hope for our redeemer will secure the rest we hope for our redeemer will secure the rest we hope for our redeemer will secure i think that's the main idea of this passage you'll notice at the beginning of chapter 2 ruth went out to find favor now naomi is sending her out to find a redeemer, to find rest. And in this passage, we're going to see that that main idea really show us various aspects, several aspects, about the nature of faith, about the nature of faith. As we consider number one in scene one, Naomi's plan in verses one to five. Naomi's plan in verses one to five. Then we're going to look at Ruth's proposal in scene number two in verses six to 15. And then finally, we're going to look at Boaz's promise in verses 16 to 15 to 18. In each of these scenes, we're going to learn something about what it means to trust in the Lord. So let's look at scene number 1, Naomi's plan in verses 1 to 5. When we come to chapter 3, we're tempted to think that each episode has just happened one day at a time. Right? But at the end of chapter 2, we're told that Ruth had gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished. Right? That's a span of roughly about seven weeks right there. And after having been shown just extravagant favor by Boaz, Naomi's wheels start to spin in her head. This food is great, but this food is only going to last us only so long. It's a short-term provision. We need long-term care. And so what does she do? Right? This woman is going to send out Ruth to find permanent care. And what's interesting right here is that Naomi had come back to Bethlehem, if you remember, bitter. Her name means pleasant. But she came back to Bethlehem bitter and what? Empty-handed. But now that empty-handedness is filled with hope. It's filled with a heart of hope. She has seen the loving kindness of the Lord through Ruth and Boaz, and her heart is beginning to soften. It's beginning to soften. And so she devises a plan. She says to Ruth in verse 1, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? And so just as Ruth took initiative to find favor in chapter 2, here we see the same thing happening, but now Naomi is seeking to find rest for Ruth. You can see her heart softening throughout this whole time, taking initiative. And the rest that she's speaking about is not the kind of laying your head down on the pillow at night kind of rest. It literally means home. It means security. Naomi wants to find a husband for Ruth. That's what this is about. A man who's going to protect her, who's going to provide for her the security of food, the security of a house, of a home, and of a family. As we saw in chapter 1, women were utterly dependent upon the men in their lives to provide and protect for them. An unprotected widow in a foreign land would make life difficult. Even after Naomi is gone, it's going to be extremely difficult for Ruth, a foreigner who is committed to Naomi in death, to be able to remain in Israel and to be taken care of. And so she needs to be provided for. And so Naomi is seeking to find rest for Ruth. Now, this is incredible because Naomi was just begging Ruth in chapter 1, verse 9, to return to Moab to find rest in the house of a husband. But right here, little did she know that she would be the one who was actually devising the plan to find rest for Ruth in Israel. One of the things that I think we love about stories is the character development. The person that you despise at the very beginning of it, or who does does not look great at the very beginning of it, you begin to love and have an affection for, right? Some of you kids in here who are watching the Harry Potter series or reading those books, you know exactly what this is like with Professor Snape. You despise him all throughout it. And then you come to that final episode, that final book, and then you realize, oh my goodness, I did not know he was doing that the entire time. We love character development. It endears us to people. Naomi is developing. She is a work in progress, and God is working in her life. She's no longer thinking about her own grief and pain. Instead, she is now seeking to be a means of God's grace to others, just like Boaz, just like Ruth had done for her. The hope of rest motivates her to act. And so she devises a plan. In verses 2 to 4, she tells Ruth to put on perfumed oil, to wear her best clothes, to go down to Boaz at night while he is sleeping at the threshing floor. And understand, Naomi isn't telling Ruth to dress to kill, right? That's not, I think, what she's getting at right here. She's telling her to get washed up because she's been out in the field all day. She needs to look presentable to Boaz. That's what I think she's getting at. And while Boaz is sleeping, Naomi tells Ruth to go in, uncover his feet so that he gets cold, lie down, and then he will explain to you everything that you should do. And as well-intentioned as this plan is, it is highly dangerous and risky (laughs) for Ruth to do this. Why wouldn't Naomi just go and talk to Boaz tomorrow? Why does it have to be tonight that this has got to happen? Why put Ruth in danger in the middle of the night with everything else that comes with it? I mean, if you just look at chapter 3, verse 14, if you want to look right there, Boaz understands what happens in the dark. Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. People are going to assume certain things about you and me. He also knows that it's not safe, which is part of one of the reasons probably why he tells her to stay so that she doesn't have to travel back in the middle of the night. And not only that, Why put Ruth and Boaz in a sexually compromising situation? Like, did you really think out this plan when you devised this thing? Right? You can just see on the Bethlehem times, right, scandal on the threshing floor, right? We can see that in the Bethlehem times. This was not the wisest place. This was not the wisest time. The threshing floor was the place where harvesters beat out the grain. They stockpiled that grain but because people would come and loot that grain, that's part of the reason why Boaz is having to sleep next to it at night. Not only that, the threshing floor was often a promiscuous place. Hosea chapter 9, verse 1, we learn that the threshing floor was often a place where prostitutes offered their services. This place was not safe. <laughs> For a widow in the middle of the night, there is a lot that could have gone wrong with this plan. Not to mention that there is no guarantee that Boaz is going to respond to Ruth favorably. She's not guaranteed that. What's remarkable is that Ruth even agreed to this. (laughs) It's remarkable that she agreed to this. This will either end up like something straight out of Hollywood, or it will serve as a beautiful picture of purity, of self-control, and godliness. And yet, behind this dangerous plan, what do we see, though, within Naomi? I think we see a deliberate faith. That's what we see behind this dangerous plan, is a deliberate faith. This destitute widow, who was once bitter and self-absorbed in her grief, has now sprung into selfless action. She has seen the Lord's loving kindness through Ruth's commitment. She has seen the Lord's loving kindness through Boaz's provision of food. This hope has made her act in faith. This plan is really an expression of Naomi's faith in God to provide according to his word as seen in Levirate marriage from Deuteronomy 25. Now, what in the world is leveret marriage talking about? Well, that happens whenever a husband dies, then the, ne- the next brother or the next relative would marry the widow to provide a son to care for the widow until she dies. That son would also carry on the family name of the deceased husband on his inherited property in the promised land. And so Naomi is not trying to just kind of self-interpret the stars of of God's promises and and try to put the pieces together. She's not trying to do that. God's providential plan is not left to hers or our own self-interpretation. That's why I love one of the quotes from John Flavel, that great Puritan who always said that God's providential acts are like reading Hebrew. They're understood read backwards. And so Naomi is not trying to self-interpret the stars of God's providence and seeing those stars align. She just somehow acts upon them. Instead, our understanding of God's plan is grounded in his word, and it's the same for Naomi. It's grounded in God's word. This is what we see about her faith. It's grounded in the word of God. It's motivated by the grace of God. Faith is a response to who God is and what God has done. She knows God's provision from Deuteronomy 25. She knows about it. And she wants to act in faith on it. She has seen the grace of God through Boaz extravagantly. And she is wanting to act in faith because she believes God to be a gracious, compassionate, and a steadfast, loving God. And this leads her to act. What we learn from Naomi is that faith isn't something that just kind of sits back and just enjoys the show. But it's an actor in the show. Faith is active. Faith is deliberate in our lives. And so, friends, when your faith is grounded in God's word and you have seen God's grace in your life, it's going to lead you to be diligent and deliberate about doing spiritual good in your life. It's going to lead you to refuse following the trend of nominalism within the culture where one just says they follow Jesus but fails to ever practice what they preach and what they profess. Friends, such nominal belief may proclaim to be active, but it in fact, may very well actually be dead. Instead of faith that is grounded in God's word, will act in ways that align with his word. It will look like prioritizing, gathering with the body of Christ, not in order to be a passive observer when you come in, but instead an active participant in giving worship to the God who deserves all of our worship. A deliberate faith will intentionally seek another brother or sister out to encourage them. It will bow in prayer, asking for humility and a heart to study the word of God. It will die to the desire to get even, but instead respond with kindness and with self-control. It will sacrifice one's time and energy to invest spiritually in another member. It's going to consider how to direct conversations at work towards spiritual things. It will put the fear of rejection to rest as you share Christ with others. That's what deliberate faith looks like, active faith. And there are a thousands of extrapolations of that that we could go into but you get what it looks like. God did not sit back when it came to our salvation. He pursued us in his own son, and he calls us to do the same as his redeemed people. We never stop pursuing our redeemer and helping others do the same. And so, brothers and sisters, how is your faith being actively expressed in your life right now? How is it being actively expressed in your life right now. Jesus did not call us to sit on the bench. He calls us to get into the game, to go and make disciples of all nations, to fill up our lives with faith-filled intentionality, whether it's that early morning in the car or at the kitchen table or even in the office throughout the week. Faith is deliberate. It reads and it hears the word of God and it responds. It acts. It's deliberate. Yet there's a caveat with all of this. Even as we act in faith, we still rest in God's providence. Neither Naomi nor Ruth knew what would come of this plan. They were acting in faith according to God's character and his word. They don't know how it's going to go down, though. And neither do we. Right? We know where it's going to end up in the end, but all the kind of ways that it's going to get there, many things we don't know that are secretive to us. But just because we act in faith doesn't mean that everything is going to happen according to our own plans. We see this idea in Proverbs 19, 21, which reminds us that many plans are in a person's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. That truth ought to comfort you. It ought to comfort you. Because even when we act in faith and all does not go according to our plan, it still goes according to God's plan. We saw that in our scripture reading from Romans 8. The Apostle Paul tells us in verse 28 that for all who love God, all things work together for good. Even our well-intentioned but poorly devised plans will not disrupt God's loving kindness to you nor to all of those others that you're seeking to show loving kindness toward. And so friends, this ought to free us to be active in our faith in a world of unknowns, because acting behind your deliberate faith is our God who is determined to work all things for your good and for our, for our good and for his glory. Knowing that allows us to selflessly take risk to serve others, which is what we see in the second point, in the second scene, Ruth's proposal. Look with me at verses 16, or 6 to 15. Verses 6 to 15, Ruth's proposal. In verse 5 Ruth signs off on this risky plan. and She sets out on what seems to be mission impossible. And notice how the narrator draws us into the privacy and into the ambiguity of this scene. In verse 7, we're told that it takes place at the far end of the pile of barley, right? They're secluded, they're isolated from everybody else. What does Ruth do? But she comes secretly and uncovers his feet and lays down. The scene also takes place at midnight when nobody's around. It's in the dark. And to add to the suspense and privacy in verse 8, Boaz is referred to as the man and Ruth is referred to as the woman. It's as if it's so private that we can't even identify who they are. They don't know what's going on. Boaz clearly doesn't know what's going on whenever he wakes up to a woman at his feet. And just when we think the suspense meter can't get any higher he does wake up and oh my goodness there is a woman at his feet and then he asks, who are you and now the suspense meter is broken Ruth goes off script Naomi says that Boaz is going to tell you what to do Boaz take or Naomi Ruth takes matters into her own hands and begins to tell Boaz what to do in verse nine she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Now, we've seen this language before. Right back in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz prays that the Lord would repay Ruth for taking refuge under the Lord's wings by returning to Israel with Naomi. And so to be taken under the Lord's wings is really a picture of protection. It's a, protection, it's a, a picture of care that God is going to provide to his people who trust in him. And so when Ruth says, take me under your wing, it literally says to spread the corner of his garment over her. That's a symbolic picture of Boaz taking Ruth under his care and protection as his wife. We also see this language spoken of the Lord for his own people in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, where the Lord speaks about spreading his garment over his people and entering into a marriage covenant with them. This picture is similar to someone receiving an engagement ring within our own culture today. That's the kind of thing that's going on right here. And so Ruth is not asking for a sexual encounter. That's not what this text is getting at. I think it clearly portrays that in terms of talking about Ruth as having noble character. And so she's not seeking a sexual encounter. She is asking Boaz to marry her. This is a proposal. She's challenging him to give her the reward of rest that he was actually praying about back in chapter 2, verse 12. Own up to what you prayed for me. And so she doesn't appeal to him on the basis of her attractiveness, but on the basis of God's covenant promises. For you are a family redeemer. She knows who he is. And so she's challenging him to live up to that status to act on his covenant obligation that has been given by God. And friends, Ruth's proposal teaches us that faith in the Lord is going to be risky at times. It will be costly and sacrificial. Ruth isn't merely pursuing Boaz for her own self-interest. She's serving Naomi. As Boaz says in verse 10, Ruth could have pursued, what, younger men, whether rich or poor. That's what people expected her to do. But she didn't do that. She didn't go back to Moab to be provided in the home of another husband there in Moab, probably men that she knew. Instead, she's come with Naomi to Israel. So Boaz says that this is a greater kindness than before because she's willing to forego marriage to younger men to provide an heir for Elimelech, an heir who would protect and provide for both Naomi and for Ruth until they die who would preserve the family name and the inheritance in the promised land, Ruth didn't do what everyone else expected her to do. Because faith does not act according to people's expectations, but according to God's covenant promises. It doesn't act according to everyone's expectations, but according to God's covenant promises. And we see this thing with Boaz. We see the same thing with him. Redeeming Ruth, And Naomi was going to come at a cost to him. He would need to care for the widow. He would need to raise the child throughout his life. And then what happens when that child comes of age? Well, he gets the property. Boaz doesn't get anything out of this deal. He is solely providing care and love and protection to them until this child is born and raised up to where then he will inherit it all in order to keep that family name on that inherited property in the promised land. But like Ruth, he lives by faith in God's covenant promises. He is a man of God's word whose faith will sacrifice for the good of others. Friends, it's the same for all of God's people. Not just Ruth and, Naomi, or Ruth and Boaz. It's the same for all of God's people. Faith is not only active, but it comes with cost. It's going to make sacrifices. It's going to take risk. It will cost you something when you serve one another. It's going to cost you precious time and energy, maybe even money, to give the proper care that one needs. It's going to cost you relational capital whenever you need to have a hard conversation with a family member or a friend that's spiritual in nature. It's going to risk losing acceptance from society once they hear what you truly believe. It will cost you Other good opportunities, such as kids' activities through the week, when God's people are central to much of your energy and ambition throughout the week. It will cost you something. You will risk for it. But even with all of these sacrifices that come with faith, there is the promise of security. There's the promise of security. After all, where does Ruth find refuge and rest when she acts in costly faith? She finds it in the Redeemer, under whose wings she has taken refuge. Following Jesus comes with a cost, but it reaps an eternal rest and security that we all long for. And in one way, this really foreshadows even Jesus, the greater Redeemer, whose threshing floor moment came whenever he was plunged underneath the wrath of God on the cross to redeem us not just from poverty, or even from social exclusion, but to redeem us from slavery to sin and death through his own death and resurrection from the grave. All of that to secure our eternal redemption. Security comes through sacrifice. And where do we see that better than our great Redeemer himself? So brothers and sisters, this is how you're able to act in costly faith. Because Jesus' sacrifice... Provides your security from destruction. His sacrifice secured your rest that your soul longs for. When our faith costs us something, it defies societal expectations for our lives. It testifies to the reality of eternal rest in Jesus, even for others, that they can have that when they come to Him. It frees us from the worry that we're just going to risk too much following Jesus. But yet, in the end, no risk that we take will ever outstrip the eternal reward that comes with that redemption that Christ secures. Costly faith is a picture to the world that the rest Jesus provides is far better than some pseudo-redeemer that this world would provide them. So when you feel that burden of doing the hard thing, don't forget that whatever earthly cost you bear by faith is always eternal gain in Christ. Although Ruth's faith came with cost, she also has been given a promise in verse 11 from Boaz. Look there at verse 11. He says to her, Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Interesting, isn't it? That phrase, noble character, Character when speaking about a woman is also the same language that is spoken of in Proverbs 31 verse 10 of that Proverbs 31 woman. She is a noble character woman, an excellent wife. And what do you know? According to the Hebrew ordering of the scriptures, where does Ruth actually come in in the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament scriptures? It comes right after proverbs 31 well that's intentional (laughs) they want you to see that ruth is really the picture of a proverbs 31 woman she embodies what's praiseworthy about proverbs 31 she's godly she's industrious she has strength in honor as her clothing as boaz says her works praise her at the city gates all the people in my town know who you are they know what you've done ruth They know about this godly woman from Moab. And praise be to God, we now have this woman of noble character with who from chapter 2, verse 1? The man of noble character. The woman of noble standing is now with the man of standing from chapter 2, verse 1. And just when we think, oh, they're going to ride off into the sunset. This is going to be a beautiful romance novel. They're going to ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after. Then comes verse 12. And you're like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. There is a nearer redeemer. There's somebody actually closer than Boaz who could redeem Ruth. And he gets nothing from the deal. And the noble woman doesn't end up with the noble man. Right? You feel this foil within the plot, and it's thickening. And so according to Leverett marriage customs, the closer the relative was to the deceased husband, the greater the obligation was to redeem the widow. And so Boaz couldn't just skirt his obligation, his responsibility. He actually needed to go to this nearer redeemer and talk to him first to see if he would want to redeem Ruth and Naomi and take their property. We're going to look at that next week. And so he tells Ruth that if the nearest redeemer is not going to redeem her, That as the Lord lives, right? He's swearing, as the Lord lives, I promise I will redeem you. So that she knows, he sends her back with six measures of barley. And as this cheering section for Ruth and Boaz just continues to grow within this text, Ruth returns to Naomi with grain and a promise. But what is she to do next? How is she to respond with this promise? This leads us to scene three, Boaz's promise, verses 16 to 18. Now, at this point in the story, we don't get to just hop on over to chapter four. <laughs> we don't get that yet. We've got these couple of verses right here. And the narrator is wanting to teach us one final lesson about faith. Not only is it just active, does it, is it costly He's wanting to fi- finally teach us the last lesson about faith. That faith waits. Faith is patient. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers once saying that the waiting is the hardest part. Every day you see one more card, you take it on faith, you take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. But what's remarkable about waiting on the Redeemer is the assurance that we actually have. In that promise, Boaz has sworn by the Lord himself that he will redeem Ruth if this nearest redeemer won't. As he sends her back to Naomi, he sends her with more barley than she ever has even had. She thought she went on a ruck march the first time with all of that grain from chapter two. Now she is loaded up and strapped up with even more grain than the time before. That barley serves as a proof, a guarantee that she will be redeemed, and that Naomi and Ruth are not left empty-handed. Now, you may remember that phrase, empty or empty-handed. When spoken of about Naomi, when she returned to Bethlehem from Moab in chapter 1, verse 21, she said that she went away full from Bethlehem, and now she's coming back what? Empty, Empty empty-handed. God took everything away from me. She is no longer as empty as she once thought. And that emptiness will lead to an even greater fullness that we're going to see next week in chapter 4. But in the meantime, her instruction to Ruth in verse 18 is also instructive for us. Naomi says, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go. As Ruth waits for her full redemption, So do we. We also wait for our full redemption. This teaches us that there's a tension that comes with faith in the promise of our Redeemer. Yes, he has paid the redemption price to purchase us from slavery to sin. But we are still waiting for our full and final redemption at his return. Our faith has not yet turned to sight. We live in the time between the times, between his first coming and his second coming. Coming, We are still awaiting that full redemption in that final redemption day. It's just as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, two millennia ago, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Faith is active and it comes with cost but it's also patient. It's also patient. And this waiting is not like waiting on our results to come back whenever we go to the doctor. This waiting is like a wedding day when we all are waiting for that bride to come down the aisle to be wed to the bridegroom. This is great anticipation. There is great expectancy and longing that comes with such waiting much like what we're experiencing right now and as we celebrate this Christmas season. And yet while we wait, we do not wait passively. We do so like Ruth and Naomi. We wait by grabbing a hold of the promises and the character of our Redeemer. We wait in confidence because our Redeemer has given us something better than just six measures of barley that's only going to last for a time. He has given us a down payment, a guarantee of our future redemption by the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is the first fruits of that resurrection of Christ. We are tasting right now the first fruits of our redemption. We do not wait passively. Instead, we can wait confidently because of all that Christ has redeemed for us through his death and his resurrection. And why? Why can we wait with confidence? Look again at verse, verse 18 the very last phrase of this entire chapter, which culminates in the concluding bookmark or the concluding bookends for this chapter. It began with Naomi wanting to find rest for Ruth. How does it end? The Redeemer who will not rest until he secures it today. Today. And so brothers and sisters, just as Boaz would not rest until he accomplished rest for Naomi and Ruth, so he also foreshadows Jesus who does not rest until we, his bride, have our home, have our rest in him. Jesus did not rest in going to the cross to secure our redemption. And he does not rest until all of his enemies are made his footstool and we are wed to him and sitting at the marriage supper of the lamb. We experience now, a foretaste of our redemption then by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And yet when Christ returns, every longing heart, everything we've ever longed for will be turned to sight. It will be turned to sight. So brothers and sisters, Jesus' restless pursuit of our rest gives us confidence as we wait. His resurrection has secured the promise of rest. And only his indestructible life can give us an indestructible rest. And that is something that you can take to the grave with you. But here's the thing. Maybe not all of us in here are actually waiting for this. Maybe you are. But I doubt every single one of us in here is actually waiting for this. Friends, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting on a better job? Are you waiting on better family relationships to happen in time? Are you waiting on a spouse to fill your desire for relational intimacy? What are you striving after to give you the rest that only Jesus can provide to you? The early church father Augustine once said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Friend, this is a great reminder that every restless ambition that you strive after in your life in order to seek a security, that security is only going to fade away. And it will be fruitless in the end. You have a loving God who has created you for a loving relationship with him. And yet when you rest in something else that can't love you back, it is a reminder that it will only leave you empty and restless in the end. It's part of the reason why you keep coming back because you feel like you still need to fill that hole and that void and that restlessness with something else. Only Jesus is only going to be able to fill that restlessness within your soul because you were created for God. The Lord has given you that longing for peace, that longing for security, that longing for rest for a reason, but it can only be satisfied in Christ. Instead, consider Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friend, the rest that Jesus gives has been secured through his own death and resurrection. And yet he offers it as a gift to us. But it's only for those who will come to him. It is only for those who will come to him. And so come to Jesus. Turn from striving after other things that are only going to make you restless. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, who will give you rest for your weary soul not just for a time not just for a day he is going to give you rest for eternity he will give you a home for eternity so what are you waiting for who are you waiting on anything less than jesus our redeemer will only in forever disappoint you because the rest that we hope for our redeemer will secure rest in him. Let's pray together. Father, we give praise to you for sending your son who would not rest in order to secure our rest. We praise you for the security, the rest that we have even right now. Lord, we know that we have it because we've been given the Holy Spirit, the down payment of that redemption. And so, Lord, we pray that by your mercy, we would remain faithful, that we would be active in faith, or that we would wait patiently in faith, and yet also know that in doing so, it will come with costs, it will be risky, and we will have to make sacrifices. And so, Lord, we pray that by your mercy, we would wait patiently and confidently as we rest in Christ now for that longing for that one day whenever all those longings that we have for rest will turn to our reality for eternity. Lord, keep us until then, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.